Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk with Sata Maturi, designer and founder of her eponymous jewelry brand. Welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK and jckonline.com. I'm with... Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online. We've got a really special guest today. She's a designer, founder of her own eponymous brand, Sata Machuri. She's based out of Gaborone, which is pretty exciting. She's calling in from Botswana. She splits her time between London and the capital of Botswana. And honestly, this is thrilling that we've got a guest from Africa. It feels very glamorous and international. Sata, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, JCK Magazine, um, and to you, Victoria and Rob, for having me. Oh, our pleasure. My goodness. What's it like there? You said it was quite hot. Is it seasonably hot or unseasonably hot? No, it's really unbearable at the moment. So, yes, we're, we're, we're well above the 30s here, and it's pretty much a heat wave that's coming through. So, very hot. But I'm not complaining. <laughs> Yeah, I guess London's typically rainy at all points of the year. So I suppose a little sun and a little heat isn't too bad. Exactly. So you've got this really incredible and interesting history in diamonds. And I'd love to just dive right in. So you're from Sierra Leone and your father worked for De Beers. Can you tell us more about that? Tell us about your background. Yes, I was born in Sierra Leone and I kind of spent my, um, my formative years, you know, primary schooling until moving to London when I was 15 where I, I kind of pursued my further education and university and then joined a mining company and then on. But there's always been a link with diamonds and the industry at large with my family. So we're kind of synonymous with it. And probably Rob and Victoria yourself, you would know a place called Connor mm-hmm. in Sierra Leone, which is the main region known to produce rough diamonds. So actually the Maturi name comes from there. And my father also worked in the industry for over a decade as the MD for a mining company for both Sierra Leone and Liberia. And that was during sort of the 70s and the 80s. So I I kind of grew up with diamonds being part of my surroundings and my interactions played a really huge part in my childhood. So kind of back in those days, Sierra Leone was, you know, often referred to as the Athens of West Africa and at the time was known to contribute a good portion of total world production. You know, I grew up in a house that had a buying or a sorting office and, you know, seeing the buyers coming from the London head office. And, you know, there's lots of sort of memories there about how I all started, you know, also having black and white photos of my sister who modeled the largest rough stone that was ever found, the Star of Sierra Leone. Goodness. <laughs> I know. I know. So I guess you take things for granted when it's probably right at your doorstep. But fast forward to the late 90s. Here I was, you know, similar doors of the same mining company that my father worked for, um, training to be a rough diamond valuer. Obviously, in Sierra Leone in the late 90s, there was a pretty nasty civil war. Were you gone by that point? Yes, I was, actually. So you could say that I was probably fortunate enough to have left and I was in school in the UK. But I still had family in Freetown. And it was a, a very harrowing experience and a very harrowing period, I think, for Sierra Leone's history. You know, I think most people in the in the West still associate it with the Civil War and with Blood Diamonds, even though that's 
long in the past. Yeah, I guess, you know, when you look at sort of my background and where it all started for me, I mean, I never gave much thought into, you know, the value of diamonds, what it was, what was going on. And whilst growing up in that sort of era, because obviously I was a little girl, right? I didn't sort of know what was going on. But having seen both sides of the diamond coin, if I can say that, I have had the opportunity to see Sierra Leone in the 80s, which is pre-conflict, but also after the 90s, post-conflict. And so I know the impact of what a resource or a commodity can do when managed well, but also when mismanaged and the negative impacts that that can have on a country and its people. And it's interesting because now you live in Botswana, which is kind of a poster child for what is considered the beneficial aspects of diamonds and came from Sierra Leone, which was kind of on the other side of the coin, as you put it. Yes, absolutely. And I think that you're essentially referring to beneficiation, which is the word that, you know, a lot of people talk about. And I think every country, having lived in Botswana, as you said, is a model case. Every country that mines diamonds or any resource for that matter has a right to see some form of value creation taking place. The question is, how far is it, you know, economically viable to push it? Is it better to work with the industry and legislate? And these are the conversations that need to happen. Is there any reason you think that Sierra Leone had a very bad experience and Botswana has, for the most part, had a very positive experience with diamonds? I guess, Rob, it's, it's two different comparisons, right? Two different things. If we take Sierra Leone, I guess you could ask what actually caused it. I think, you know, the war or the conflict was about power and access to mineral wealth in order to be able to finance an agenda of corruption, if you call it that, you know, with many parties involved. However, you know, they've moved on. And the one good thing that's come out of that is the Kimberley process. You know, when you look at countries out there, just like Sierra Leone, we could also bring in Central African Republic. We can bring in the DRC. I think we're seeing a lot more engagement from producer level, but also from a downstream level, too, in the form of, you know, blockchain adoption projects that are looking at capacity building and promoting sort of that sustainable way of life and continuity for mining communities. So you want to update us on what's going on in Botswana as far as beneficiation? It's obviously been a, a long-term project. They moved the sites there, and there's been a lot more manufacturing. Has that uh, taken hold as much as people wanted? Yes, I think they've made headway. I, I mean, certainly, as you know, there was quite a huge shift to the producer countries from Diamond Tears and, and site holders who actually came through, and a few retailers actually, who actually made that shift. So I think for Botswana, there's been quite a lot of good sort of work and good progress that's happening. I've worked in South Africa before, during the period 2005 and 2008, people coming through and opening up cutting and polishing factories. But I think we're seeing the same happening here now. Again, still a lot to be done, but still quite a lot of good stuff going on. It feels like we could probably talk about Africa and how it's handling all these things for hours. I, I'd love to hear about when you first entered the diamond industry as a professional. And I'm wondering, was it a foregone conclusion that you would work in this business? No, not at all. I started off... I came through to London and I went to school there. I went to university. I then left and I ended up in the doorsteps of the industry of De Beers. So I started off as a trainee diamond valuer. You could say bottom of the food chain, which is always good as you need to get a solid grounding from when you leave the training school. So I spent four years on the production floors, really learning the craft before moving into sales. I joined sales then. 
I was appointed as a key account manager based in London. But very quickly, I was posted out to Southern Africa. So 2005 and 2008, I was based in Johannesburg within the sales and marketing team. Also spent a lot of time going up to the office in Kimberley. And that was mainly for sort of operational activities pertaining to sites and, and all of that. So it was good. I mean, my time in a, what you could call a major producer country opened up my knowledge and my insights into beneficiation and all of sort of the producer country relations and engagements. Right. I mean, to think about this, this era and the diamond trade is volatile, a lot of things going on. There was supplier of choice, you know, still embroiled in the conflict diamond crisis. It was a really a very newsworthy time in the trade. It seems like from this growing up when you didn't really put a lot of thought into what these diamonds were worth because, you, you know, you took it for granted. You were a kid. And here you are years later immersed in valuating these stones and figuring out how to sell. It's such a, such a dramatic shift, but such a through line. Indeed, indeed. And obviously, after my time in South Africa, I was sent back up to London in 2008 when we had, you know, the, the economic downturn. And I was then given the responsibility to manage a number of key site holder accounts based in Belgium, but also in particular the India region. And during my time, you know, sort of managing and traveling to India was one of the most interesting periods for me as this is where I kind of formed my knowledge to the dynamics and workings of where a large majority of our goods ends up. I just love the energy, the creativity and how vibrant the country was at the time. And to be honest, I learned a huge amount about the industry, the product pipeline, and of course, jewelry manufacturing, which also had a huge influence on my venturing into the jewelry world. One of the things I think people don't realize about the diamond industry is how many different cultures there are. And it really gives you an insight into different cultures, into different countries. Did you find that, that people have certain misapprehensions about Africa on your trip or just in general? Or Yes and no. I mean, obviously, I was coming through working for a mining company that is rooted in Africa, right? And also, you know, the mines were mainly in Africa. And also working for De Beers, I think one of the good things was there was a lot of exchange from the mining or the producer countries into what was then the distribution and selling arm, which was based in Charterhouse. So not really. But then again, I think probably it's the nature of a diamond tear they tend to not open up very quickly until they sort of know who they're dealing with. It quickly faded away once they sort of engaged with you. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. So all these years traveling back and forth, you're back in London. It's around, I think, 2015. What happened, I guess, to lead you to create your own brand? What was the thinking? Had you always wanted to do that? And why then? It was, it was a passion for jewelry, first and foremost, and being a creative person. And taking that leap of faith to walk away from a fantastic career that I'd done for 16, 17 years. For me, it was about identifying a market for distinct fine jewelry that was different from the norm that was out there, but which also drew inspiration from the African continent and beyond, given that a large majority of the precious materials and the minerals and the metals actually comes from the continent. 
Wow. Have people been receptive to that vision of African-inspired jewelry? Yes, they have been, actually. My designs link back to the continent and, and drawing from sort of the vast cultures, the history, the heritage, symbolism, nature, and not forgetting that it also links across to influence other parts of the world, right? Such as the diaspora living out in other parts of the globe. I must say my designs do not follow the traditional norm, and that's probably because I'm not from a design school per se. So I look at it differently in the sense that we strive to create a contemporary interpretation of a story with an African ethos. I'm looking at a pair of really spectacular earrings called the Java Shield earrings, and they've got rose-cut diamonds and rubellite, and they're just really wow. So the Java Shield is from the collection called Artful Indulgence. And it was actually inspired by African masks and spiritual masquerade. These masquerades are found in Central and and Western Africa and have very deep sort of spiritual and ancestral meanings to them. So we said, right, we're going to do our own interpretation of these. And it was a good collection. On the webinar, I saw that you talked a little bit about some of the challenges you faced, you know, setting up a new company basically from scratch. You want to talk a little bit about them and any advice you'd give to somebody else who is in your position? Absolutely. I'd I'd love to. I've been on a a number of webinars over the last six months. There's a lot of barriers within the industry. So when we talk about, you know, the jewelry industry, it's a hugely capital intensive industry. You get no financial support. So how does a 24-year-old who has just come out of design college go to source funding? And then you throw in raw materials, you know, very likely that that very designer does not have money to buy a carrot of 10-pointer brilliance to go do his first Pave collection. And then there's the softer issues, you know, your business hygienics, how to run a business, what to do, when to do it, when to attack, when to, you know, pull back. Sustainability, which costs quite a lot of money. And if I were to sort of go back and start again, the three things that I think would really help would be having role models and and mentorship programs. I think the trade can do a huge amount as well. And, And I think they need to engage more at the grassroots level and maybe collaborate with, I don't know, design schools, colleges. And let's not forget, the industry ultimately gains from the new talent that comes in. But I think the one thing that is really, really crucial is that retail recognition and the route to market. And by that, I mean, you know, sort of downstream players, retailers in particular. And I struggle with that when I started. I just think, you know, there's a lot of momentum, a lot of talk, and I believe that we're moving in the right direction. But I think there's still a lot of work to be done. And I just, I hope to see something tangible and visible and more success stories coming through. Uh, You talked about mentorship programs. Is there anything you would like to see established? Within the industry, I do a bit of mentoring for two ladies here who I've mentored in Botswana, but I also do a few in the UK. So I think designers, we just need to sort of reach out and pull up people who are struggling out there. So when you did start out, was there a lucky break for you in that first year or two of having your own brand? I mean, how did you even land your first retailer or your stockist? Right. Okay. That's interesting. I'm glad that you've asked that. It was hard. In the first two years, I didn't get a retailer at all. In fact, two, three years, didn't get a retailer. It's only recently in the last two years that I got signed on to a retailer. But, and again, maybe I'm hoping if aspiring jewelry designers who want to enter into the business are listening, you have to learn to know what your brand is, 
what what your requirements are and actually be quick to act and look at alternative routes to market. I started, few people who bought from me were actually people who were in the art scene. So they were into contemporary art. And I found out that they actually went to art galleries. So I said to myself, okay, all right. If the retailers won't stop me, then I would go and chase the art galleries. And so I'm now stocked (laughs) in two art galleries in the UK, and I'm stocked in a gallery in Paris, not yet in America. I'm working on that. But I actually had to go there and just make it work for me. It takes time. That's great, though. I mean, your work is quite know it's elaborate it's statement jewelry very gem set it's really quite beautiful as you would have figured out i'm quite partial to diamonds so we make sure that there is diamonds or a sprinkle of diamonds in everything that we create and some of our pieces are quite diamond intensive you've talked about that you you're very active on instagram i mean obviously a lot of jewelry designers are on instagram how do you make yourself stand out Uh, how's that helped you and what kind of challenges have you found on that platform? Yes, social media has really opened up my access to the world and the brand's access to the world. I must be honest, I have a very small but mighty team that actually makes this work and, you know, sort of helped me do this. Without social media, how does one find the money to be able to do above-the-line print campaigns in major magazines and billboards? I don't have that kind of money. So I had to find a way for social media to work for me. We've got great customers out there who know us. And in fact, in most cases, they come to us directly. It's good. Social media, it's good. It's been a great tool. And for me personally, I like the fact that you're able to connect with other creatives as well. I want to go back to what you said about coming to the States. Is that part of your plan to to make a presence, to connect with some retailers here? So I did my debut at the Couture Show 2019. We were in Vegas and we were planning to launch the new collection this year in Couture as well. But obviously um, that wasn't meant to be. But States is definitely a a market I'd like to be in. Still working on it. Yeah, I'm sad I missed you. So are you currently at work in another collection? Are you in the midst of designing something new for 2021? I am. We're about to launch, fingers crossed, probably next week. It should come out on social media. I'm so excited, Victoria, about the new collection. And one thing, again, when I do a collection, we just don't do something and say, right, we're inspired by something in Africa. I actually spend a lot of time researching it. And I enjoy that process of researching and validating the inspirational themes that actually influence the creation. So I personally build a story and a vision for each project. Um, I'm doing Art Deco. It's one of my favorite styles of jewelry, but I'm doing it in a twisted form. I've called it the Twisted African Art Deco. I've always had a fascination for Egypt and the Nile sort of Delta region, but there will be a twist to it. Oh my goodness. Well, so this podcast will be out next week. So around the 27th of October, is that about when we can expect to look at your Instagram and get the word? Yes, and we'll be launching with a retailer in Place Vendôme. It's really, really, really fun stuff. And and we're going back into history. We're going back into time. Well, we caught you at this wonderful moment. I'm so glad we're speaking to you on the eve of its debut. It's pretty cool. Any final thoughts before we close up? I think the world's changed a lot in the last couple of months. It's been really challenging for all of us. 
But I think what the pandemic has done is forced us to be more innovative in everything that we do, in some respects has allowed us to sort of accelerate certain things that we would have swept under the carpet. You know, I'm really excited about 2021. I think there'll be a huge amount of creativity coming through. And so I'm really looking forward to it. I'm, I'm really looking forward to all the new collections, the new films, the arts, the music, and the whole new genres of, of everything. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.